Hello and welcome to another episode of the Northern Fire Podcast. I'm going to be your host once again, Sean Parry, and today I'm joined by Jim from his company known as Asgard. Asgard specializes in silver and pewterware, making arm rings and uh, pendants and such. And uh, I've been aware of this stuff for the least uh, the past 10 years or so when I first came across and uh, bought a load of arm rings from uh, the gift shop in the Jorvik Center in York. And um, yeah, I still have them. It's, it's really cool. It's definitely stood the test of time. If you're not aware of this stuff, you should definitely head over to the shop and have a look. Anyhow, today we're going to be discussing... Well, I'm just going to use this opportunity to pick Jim's brains about some things that I think are interesting to hear his view on some of this stuff. And basically to just try and have some interesting discussions on, uh, you know, uh, how how possibly metalwork was in the Viking Age. I will warn you that these aren't academics discussions as such, but they're certainly not Viking beginner 101, uh, you know, sort of discussions because there's enough of that on the internet already. So, um... I will also just say that this is going to be focusing more around the Viking Age once again. But in future podcasts, uh, we will be branching out into discussing lots of other things as well. It's just that so far, you know, a lot of uh, our guests are, are specialising in the Viking Age. So uh, stay tuned for, you know, for other bits of history too. So without further ado, here we go. Jim Glazard, thank you so much for, for for having this talk with me. I really appreciate it. How are you keeping? Hey, Sean. Um, yeah, pretty good. Um, pretty good. We're uh, yeah, forging ahead out of lockdown, uh, continuing on with yeah, uh, projects that have been yeah, uh, uh, postponed, put off, uh, and everything's kind of getting back to almost normal. Yeah, I very much know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we're going to start off then by, uh, well, obviously, you know, I'm I'm yeah. familiar with your work and stuff, but um, you know, I'd like uh, I'd like people to hear a little bit about how you got started in your your line of profession. Oh right, well, um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm probably best known for being the founder partner of Asgard, um, the company run by myself and my wife Katrina. Uh, we well, I, I'd say this to absolutely everybody. You've probably heard it before, Sean. We make replicas of Viking Age objects, um, mostly jewellery, because it's the jewellery that sells. You know, uh, over the over the years, I think we've probably produced well, we've produced so so many Thor's hammers as Thor's hammers, and Viking jewellery and interest in uh, Viking material culture has grown over the last what ten years or so. We've you know yeah. produced so so much of that. I started with a degree in archaeology from York. I graduated in 1994. I got interested in Viking reenactment while I was doing that. Um, Then I worked at the Orbit Viking Centre in 1999 and started making replica objects from the galleries. In 2002, I went professional with with my partner, wife, wife, uh, rock hero um, mm-hmm. organizing stabilizing influence Katrina 
and we started selling yeah, the replicas I was making around shows and events in UK and abroad. Getting a yeah, getting a website. We I think we got a website pretty much in two thousand and two. I remember it. We were under the name Asgard Crafts then, and it was made on Microsoft Publisher. Lots of people couldn't believe we managed to make a working website on Microsoft Publisher, but we did it. Um, so yeah, we would. So we started, yeah, sell, selling online and sending stuff, yeah, all over the world. Then, yeah, with replicas for uh, museum galleries and and all sorts. Uh, we moved to the Highlands of Scotland in two thousand and four, and two thousand five. We got a little shop, which I mean, I, I don't know if people can correct me, but if they if I'm wrong, but I think it might have been the first Viking shop in the UK in Loch Carron in Scotland, which was a little shed by the side of the road that was my workshop. Nice. Where I'd make stuff for, for museums, for school visitors. I got working more and more in silver then. I'd been working in bone, antler, uh, copper alloys. But yeah, uh, mostly by that, up to that time, I got more, was making more and more silver and becoming more of, a, more of a silversmith and sort of seeing what the jewellery would do. And what we developed there was our range of pewter, yeah, uh, pewter thors, hammers, pendants... I started producing pewter, uh, pewter dragon bracelets. You know, you know the the the, the, yeah. the first dragon-headed uh, bracelet in pewter. We started producing that in that shop, and then uh, then with the financial crash, you know, the, the the first first major recession we saw in the life of this business, uh, the silver sales plummeted, and we fi- we fired more into pewter, and went more into online selling and uh, and wholesale, which is why, you know, you know the, the rest is kind of history. We're now in Dunoon and you see yeah, Asgard pewter products everywhere. I will also add, though, like, uh, you know, I am, well, you do also do a lot of silver work as well, still, as well as the pewter. Mm. And I, I feel like I'm going to add as well that yep. the whole thing of that financial crash was one of the reasons I turned from being a painter to being a tattooist as well, because it was such a difficult time to you know for for artists to get through we're, we're shaped by the times that we see aren't we yeah. you know it's yeah i look back at it and I, and I and i am moving myself personally in my own in my own craft and my own learning more towards working in silver perfecting techniques i've always wanted to try uh and and working on that then I always get derailed into new things because mm-hmm. then, then I decide I need a new I need new tools as it just happened or I need a new toolbox and I find myself working on other techniques. The the my my latest distraction is wrought iron. Actually working with wrought iron on a forge, which it, you know I've been I've been you know playing around shaping um, modern smelted mild steel for years and I and I love working with that so. So easy to shape. I've always said it's like working plasticine. If plasticine was like hot, it was it was five hundred degrees, and you hit shaped it with a hammer. You know, it's yeah. like yeah, mild steel is like working with uh, yeah, working like that. But then use wrought iron instead. You know, traditional wrought iron, which are, you know I've 
you, you either recycle or have a source for it. And um, and it's an entirely different beast. It has a grain running through it. It will crack. It will break on you. It will do unexpected things. And that's really challenging. I like to be challenged, clearly. You know, yeah. so you, if you're not if you're not doing something that's challenging, then you're not learning. But man, it can be a pain. And I'm finding myself working more down this this route of well. The craft that I do, my specialist craft, which is which is the non-ferrous metalworking, shaping, uh, copper alloys and silver, they need tools for that. The tools existed at the time and were made by people who understood the materials that were required for the tools. And I'm just, it, it, and it's it's a rabbit hole. It's a it's just a, a rabbit hole and disappearing down in this, uh, in terms of you know, researching the tools, making the tools making my own yeah, my own tools for what I should be doing, which is the silver work. So <laughs> that's where you end up. Yeah. I do exactly the same thing in uh in some of my well, some of the things that I craft with as well. And it's one of those things that you find, especially I say with leather working, the tools that you need to do traditional leather working just well, maybe that you can find them online, but uh most of them are terrible, so mm. you end up having to just make them yourself from scratch. I always found uh, I, I do I do bits of leather working. I enjoy a bit of leather working, which is why I don't do it for to sell to anybody. Uh, that's a that's a personal rule. Yeah. I enjoy tooling leather. It takes me ages, so I don't sell it. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> then I, then I wouldn't enjoy it. Well, I think it's well, <laughs> no, one no. of the things with leather work as well as well. It takes so long and. Mm. The general public now usually don't know how long it takes and how much effort you put into it. So it's just that whole thing of what's the point of trying to uh, to put a hundred hours into something and sell it if absolutely wants to do it. So you might as well just do it for yourself. Absolutely, that and and that's always been an issue, uh, particularly in Viking reenactment. I mean, the Viking Viking reenactors, you know, for as long as I've known them since since the early nineties, you know, joining as a skint student. Uh, you know, um, have always been perpetually financially embarrassed. So, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and with a, you know, with a great desire to do things themselves as well, which is nice. That's one of the things I really enjoy about Viking reenactment is people's uh, desire to learn to, uh, you know, it, it, the next, it's like the next step for the history nerd is getting involved and learning and learning more about crafts and how things were done. But as soon as you present an item that's taken yeah a hundred hours to make and and put an appropriate price on it so that you're not we're not working for nothing or you know so that you can actually afford to you know, pay your rent and, and buy clothes then you know the you know you get that reaction to the price don't you yeah it's getting I think it's getting better people at least appreciate why you put those kind of prices on these days you know I think that the more we talk as craftspeople the more we talk about what goes into into producing a bespoke item you know I think that the more the understanding is is there of you know why those prices exist and they're not you know and, and the reception is not just like kind of a you know a, a swift walking away they want to know more about how you've made it but still doesn't necessarily mean that you you get to be able to sell it well that's what's interesting um i've i've uh, always been fascinated with the parallels in you know different historical time periods compared to now is that 
uh, we talked a little bit about this in York, how there would have been, say, let's say a pendant, a, like a, a Viking dragon pendant mm. or something, and the original would have been amazing, perfect, and would have had many, many hours put into it and was in the best materials. And then there would have been absolute terrible copies of it, and terrible copies of the terrible copies, and they were in circulation for the people that, you know, either weren't so fussed about having something really nice or it was more within their means? I think what we can see from the archaeological record and what... Uh, um, can, can I just di digress just ever so quickly onto my archaeological background, which, you know, for anybody listening to this, I went and did a Master's in Material Culture and Experimental Archaeology, which I graduated at the, at the start of this year uh, to improve my practice in experimental archaeology from the point of view of an experienced craft worker working in, uh, in techniques and designs from the Viking Age. So, yeah, when it comes to the archaeological record of you know, the, the, the range of materials that we use, styles and designs, you can clearly see that. You know, um, you know, you've got everything from, you know, from lead alloy yeah, uh, brooches from Coppergate, which were clearly you know, sort of bottom end of the dress spectrum and were imitating designs that you might find in, in uh, finely engraved silver that had been produced in an ecclesiastical workshop that you know, could easily have been worn by you know, the, the richest members of, of Viking Age York society. So you definitely got uh, that spectrum of... Yeah, of a status in objects and you can see that um yeah you can see how one imitates the other without necessarily an understanding of what was behind the original design so i don't think that they're necessarily being made by the same people oh of course yeah, it, yeah. um but one of the things that i'm very interested in for from the experimental archaeology point of view is how it is how the, the techniques of, uh, of metalworking in the Viking Age... I mean, you said you were interested in, in lots of different uh, periods and parallels between different periods. I am very, very much a Viking Age specialist. I mean, you know, people have, have asked me if I've, if I've looked at stuff from the Staffordshire Horde, and I just go, no, not really. It's not, it's not my period. It's just a bit too early. I don't understand the designs. It would take a whole... whole you know, like it would take you know, a couple more years of work to to go and understand those designs and, and I can get a quick idea of how they're made, but you know, not enough to be able to, to start reproducing them myself. So I'm very much rooted in the Viking age because there, and there is so much to look at in the Viking age. And I'm particularly interested in the transmission of technique in manufacturing and how that interacts with um, with transmission of design, because you know yourself, you've got the the Viking Age art styles, which you can see developing through the Viking Age, and you know I'm thinking that they will have spread around with people who who were trained in their practice in one place where the art style was in use, and then they've moved to somewhere else. This is a, you know, sort of the working hypothesis of you know, what the models for you know, transmission of this information are is that they would move from the place where they did their apprenticeship to a new place where they where they might work as a journeyman and pick up new new uh, new techniques and new styles, 
and then sort of the final stage of, of a craftsperson's sort of working life is when they have their own workshop where they're then teaching those designs to their own apprentices. That looks like to be very plausible you know, sort of mechanism for the transmission of design, which is something we're very interested in in, from, in cultural terms of what the Viking Age looked like. But underneath that is the transmission of technique. And technique can be traced, th traced um, independently of design by comparing techniques used in different workshops because yet yeah, right at a, at a sort of very fine-grained you know, almost cellular level you can uh, identify different techniques in in Viking Age metalworking from the finished product from the uh, the debris left in workshops in terms of casting molds crucibles that uh, you know tools that sort of thing you can identify that and if you can in yeah, what I'm very interested in is whether that can be um, connected with transmission of art styles. So you see, that's where we go off down another another little rabbit hole of uh, of of interest. Well, that's what's uh, interesting, isn't it? Is mm. like you say that it's not just the skill of of either or; it's the combination of the two. I say you're going to have some amazing metal workers in the in the period that just would not have had been that skilled with uh, the actual artistic side of it you know and uh, same the other way around i um ooh, oh i don't i don't know um i think i think there is enough evidence that there is something going on at a very very yeah high highly accomplished level of art there that would be that would be seen amongst the finest metal workers of the period, say, uh, for example, the you know what what is referred to as the hidden say style of of, of pendant. Do you, do you know the one? It's like um, it, it's like a cross shape with with uh, three crosses around it and a hanging loop. Yes. Yeah. Um, they're usually they usually carried out in the Bora style, very firmly in the Bora style. And they're usually made from uh, a, a sheet base formed over a over a patrice over a, a matrix that then has um, uh, granulation work attached to the surface. The hidden say hoard itself as the as the type hoard is absolutely incredible, incredibly well accomplished granulation work in uh, in gold. Um, connected with that from Hedeby is a collection of um, of bronze matrixes. So the, the actual matrix that you would use for sh shaping the sheet metal of that particular type of pendant. There are several in a bag of of bronze Patrice uh, 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 pieces uh, from Hedeby Harbour, including other designs of pendants, some of which have never actually been seen as finished pendants. You know, the, the, the actual finished jewellery work doesn't exist anywhere. You can only interpret what it might have looked like from, yeah, uh, from these, these, uh, these formers. Um, you know, so they represent a very highly accomplished, technically accomplished style that, you know, that looking at, you know, there's a basic design in the Bora style in the, in the actual matrix used for shaping the sheet. Then... But the the ornamentation to that 
is then the responsibility of the of the individual artisan making the finished piece, and they're they're adding their own interpretation to it with little little tweaks and you know little uh, uh, you know with little finesse you know and that you know all all over that you can see that in the hidden say hoard and a few other Scandinavian pieces that you know, were based on that style. I'd say their their level of yeah their of artistic accomplishment goes beyond just parroting, yeah, just parroting the original design as transmitted to them. I would say, yeah, a sort of connected object from York is also a hidden say style uh, pendant in lead alloy, which is a, again it's that sort of that cross. Yeah, could also say it's a hammer. You know, there's it's potentially from the conversion period of Denmark so it might be one of those sly little objects intended to be able to represent either a hammer or a cross whichever whichever way out you're feeling um yeah there's another one from York which is in lead alloy and appears to be the rough again a rough shape for shaping the sheet around so there's an indication that 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 style of metal working with a very you know with very technically complex uh, method for making a finished piece that requires a high level of artistic understanding of where it's come from is also present in in Coppergate in York and that the lead alloy isn't going to be as good for uh, for shaping it's going to wear out and presumably that's what that particular piece is doing in Coppergate uh, that one's not as good anymore maybe if that got, if that particular artisan had a uh, had a mold for making a new one they go and make a new one and throw that one away so yeah, where, where did we start? Uh, <laughs> kind of, sorry, I've lost, lost track there. But yeah, I, I think there there is a connection between the artistic understanding and the uh, and the uh, the technical expertise. Yeah, and I think uh, Viking Age artisans are probably learning through their whole life. You know, uh, learning new designs, developing designs, uh, and. Yeah, carrying out work, and I think that's kind of driven by the fact that you know they're they're engaged in techniques which involve a, a type of not mass production but batch production, where they have to be able to make a mold, but a mold is only go is going to produce some uh, finished pieces. How many finished pieces you would get from, say, one ceramic mould is a matter of some debate and no, that nobody's actually uh, finally established on the list of things to do. Uh, you know, um, is establish how many how many finished items you will get from one mould, and therefore, yet yeah, therefore the next batch is going to be slightly different. Will require some some development of the form, and I think that's how art styles change you know that's how uh, how objects develop as you know but there's enough from one batch that you know if, if it's five if it's ten those finished objects are are then spread around the viking world on trade routes from the uh, around the around the developing trading emporia and you know giving ideas to other artisans who then see it and go well that's nice i'm going to try and do my own version of it which they did. I mean, they, they nicked ideas off each other, left, right, and centre. You can see that. Um, the the artisans themselves are very actively involved in the development of style, and yeah, yeah, style and design. You know, while and this has been shown by studies in Scandinavia, while maintaining the same underlying um, technical 
expertise in in manufacturing methods. So yeah, it's it's a massive world of uh, yeah of research, and this is important because the you know the Viking Age was a time of the development of European nations. It was a time of of trade contact between. Uh, contact and um, you know, settlement between Scandinavia and the rest of Europe and the, this happened for a reason that reason is not is not yet clear there's many arguments about you know, about why exactly this happened I firmly believe that we will understand more about the reason why the Viking Age happened in the first place if we study the mechanisms by which it happened and that includes just people, transhumans, people moving from place to place and when you have demonstrable, you see, you see how this is coming down in scale, started here with you know with you know so why did the Viking Age happen then on a you know on a, on a, a sort of cellular fine-grained level you start to look at where you've got individuals moving from a workshop in Hedderby producing Gold object, uh, gold objects that may be the ones that found at Hiddensee then you could have individuals with the same practical skills potentially living in York using uh, using uh, lead alloy matrices to produce similar objects are they the same people difficult to tell when what we're looking what I'm looking for in, in experimental archaeology is ways of identifying whether they are the same people whether they know the same people did they you know how have these skills and designs part of the you know part of the movement of people in the viking age and does that help us understand why it happened in the first place yeah <laughs> and it gets a long way away from selling pewter jewelry for a living doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> well that's one of the things uh, one of the reasons that you know i wanted to do this uh, this podcast with you is to sort of to sort of show the person that is behind the you know just uh, the items that you see because we talked before about, yeah, we talked before about the the whole thing that obviously you can talk about the cost of the materials and the amount of time that goes into items to create them, but it's also the background of the the, the person that's made that, and that's mm. the same now as it was then. I think that's that's another personal motivation for me, having spent so long, you know, the the, the last twenty years now. You know, reproducing you know, Viking Age objects. Yeah, some of them get tweaked for a modern audience, but you know that that, that happens. Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, having spent the last twenty years, I've become more and more fascinated in with the the people producing the originals. You know, they're they're Absolutely. yeah, they're, they're me a thousand years ago. You know, I don't want to live a thousand years ago. Who wants to live a thousand years ago? It would be horrible. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't understand the people, the disease. I, I'd be dead. I'm I'm forty seven. I'd probably be dead by now. You know, I've no intention of dying yet. Thank you very much. And you know, so we don't want to live a thousand years ago. But I'm very, very interested in the people who did, the people who, you know, who learned the learned the skills that I'm reconstructing at the knee of a master. What age were they? Were they apprenticed to a yeah to a metal worker and learned how to operate a forge? You know, yeah, yeah. The the, the human. The, the human experience, the day-to-day -day life of these people. And I think once you get beyond just making replicas, which you, know, you could do you could do using modern tools uh, yeah, any day of the week, that's 
says, yes, fair enough, it's valid if it's kind of, if it looks like the original and, you know, the museum wants it in a hurry then and it all it has to do is sit there and represent uh, an original piece, then, you know, that, that's a replica. But once you start getting into using the original tools and techniques and start to understand the level of skill, start to understand how the materials react with each other, start to understand the properties you need from tools and how to produce those, then you start to understand a little bit more about the daily life of people a thousand years ago as well. That was what motivated me to go and do the Masters in, in Experimental Archaeology. I was producing, um, handling replica uh, replicas for uh, for the Orbit Viking Centre, for uh, they have a, uh, several exhibitions that tour the country, going to small museums where they have some original objects and some replica objects for people to handle. For funny story, there was a sort of, you know, a, a couple of knives, a couple of Viking knives, where it went into into one exhibition, and I was talking to um, the the, the uh, people at the Orbit had commissioned this, and says, and it suddenly occurred to me, how how sharp do you want these knives to be? <laughs> and they're like. They're for school kids to pick up. They can't be sharp at all. <laughs> Leading to the challenge of producing something that looks like a Viking knife, but can't possibly be used to cut anything. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is harder than making a sharp knife. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Sharp knives, make that, yeah. <laughs> it, it look, yeah. If it, it looks like a knife and cuts, it's a knife. You know, make something that looks like a knife... But isn't a knife that kid, that school kids can't stab each other with? You know, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that was challenging in itself. But yeah, there was there was quite a few objects like that that I made and started thinking more about. You know, I've got to this point. You know, I can make antler cones using a reconstructed technique from the archaeology. What was the life of the people who were yeah who were doing this originally like? You know. What was their lifestyle? Where did they live? Were they, were they part of the sort of, you know, yeah, of the the kind of wandering groups of people in the Viking Age, which is entirely possible. You know, there's quite famously there were people wandering around Europe in the Viking Age. We call them Vikings. Yeah, moving from place to place, armed. You know, are, are they the same people as the craftspeople? I have a kind of little, yeah, that's a weighted question on my side. I have a. Kind of little romantic notion that they might have been, you know, with tools in their bag, you know, sort of raiding monasteries when when they felt, when uh, that's what everyone else was doing, you know, settling down and making things when uh, you know where when it wasn't uh, when it when there wasn't a raid on the go, yeah. But yeah, evidence for that is uh, you know it's still yet to be identified, shall we say? Yeah, that's um, interesting. Idea. So you know, I started. So thinking more about these people, well, you know, yeah, uh, like I said, with the metal working, and there's evidence for it with bone and antler working as well. It looks like, you know, styles and techniques are moving around the Viking Age. So you're looking, looking at, you're looking for individuals who can move from place to place. It was a dangerous, dangerous time. You know, it a, you know, it would have been safest to move with groups. It would have been safest to move with armed groups. Armed groups turn up in all sorts of accounts of the Viking Age, yeah, yeah, hitting monasteries, raiding raiding villages, yeah, dabbling in a bit of slave trading, you know, so yeah, they turn up all over the place. Were they the same people? Who knows? You know, at the moment, it's a, an interesting interesting thought. But I wanted to know more about the people behind the crafts. 
And when you look at crafts, occasionally you even get names as well. And that's the really, really cool thing, particularly in comb making. When you have a, a comb case from Lincoln, you know, with, with Torfast, you know, it's the name of the comb maker. Torfast made a, made a good comb. It's written on a comb case from Lincoln. So, you know, you, you've got evidence of this actual guy's work. Yeah, that survived a thousand years and you can put a name to it as well. Presumably, he, was, yeah, he must have been well enough known a co-maker that it was worth inscribing his name onto his work. Yeah, that, that's, that's really, yeah, really kind of, that's full contact archaeology. You're getting right up to an individual. It's not every day you can do that. I like to think in, ter in terms of replicating you know, uh, the work in the same way that it was done a thousand years ago. You can you can almost see the movement of their hands. You you're following the same techniques. You're using the same tools. You know, if you can set it in a in a, you know, a reasonably uh, yeah a reasonable um, reproduction of a Viking Age workshop, you can almost see you know what they saw. And that's as close as yes, you can possibly get to people a thousand years ago. As close as I'd like to get to people from a thousand years ago yeah. as well, to be fair. But, you know, that's... Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, mm. it's, a bit, it's a little bit of a random thing. We're talking about hands and individuals that would work in workshops. I heard that within coin stamping that they think that rather than having a tube that you would put all of the mechanisms in to make the stamp, that... They would normally just get a slave to hold it in place while someone hit it with a hammer. Do, do you do you think there's anything to that? I can't comment. I really wouldn't know. I've done plenty of coin stamping. It was one of the one of the very first one of the very first Viking things I made. Of course, working at the Orvi Viking Centre, yeah. um, their their health and safety would have an absolute fit at that <laughs> um, because yeah. Uh, but what, of course, you have from you know, the, the evidence for coin striking is coin dies, of which there's two found at, found at Coppergate. And, well, ooh, yeah, hmm, no sign of a tube. No sign of any way of actually holding them together. I find it, so we know what the dies look like, um, but no sign of a tube. It just makes sense, and certainly if you're going to do it safely, Without it flying off, that you—you you caught me slightly on slightly on the hop. I will, I will, um, I will uh, give a, a quick, yeah, a quick assessment of that. The main issue I can see with that is it not actually holding together. Yeah, I mean, it brings to it brings to mind the old joke of you know like yeah, you know, sort yeah, you know, the apprentice holding something and the master saying you nod your head, I'll hit it. Whether you could feasibly hold it in place firmly enough for it not to just go flying off when struck with a big hammer so it would be the main argument against that yeah no, notice i'm not disputing the use of uh, uh you know slave thralls in the viking age in the in the metal working workshop for for grubby jobs although i'd, I'd also throw in that the apprentice is probably also uh, in line for for that kind of uh that kind of work because one thing that the apprentice needs is close up um yeah close up observation of what the yeah of the work that's being carried out 
whether you'd want to waste apprentices by maybe accidentally dunting them over the head with a sledgehammer is another matter. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think there is an answer for that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Well, I know it was a little off topic. Yeah. If, if, uh, the only thing that would settle that to my mind is actual an actual tube turning up. An actual pipe turning up that you know in a maybe the in tube a just wasn't setting. present with them when they were found. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I think both. I think I'm right in saying that both of the dies from uh, Coppergate, which al- always strikes me as a slightly odd location for uh, for a mint in the first place. You know, so this is somewhere that's being entrusted by uh, by the rulers of the city to produce their. Uh, their weighed, measured, um, you know, uh, sanctioned coinage, and basically it's the grotty workman's, uh, the the grotty you know, sort of um, uh, craft corner. You know, it's muddy streets. It's uh, you know somewhere where they where they're turning out. Uh, yeah, they're turning out cheap end jewellery. It's somewhere where I mean there, there is silver and gold working going on there, but not in massive quantities. I think I'm not alone in thinking that that the coin dies ended up at Coppergate for recycling, repair. Or you know, some other purpose than than that being exactly where they were made. So the act- possibly counterfeit. Mm, no, I wouldn't necessarily. No, they match. They match official coins. They're they're not. I don't think they're counterfeit. Maybe the work of making them was farmed out to somebody who worked at Coppergate. That's possible, but the actual the actual minting itself quite possibly wasn't happening in there. In which case, the day to day tools because a tube like that would yeah. You know, made by a blacksmith and you know would have value in its own right you wouldn't want to throw them away so that could be at the original mint site wherever that was mm. so i don't know but yeah but i'm not going to dismiss out of hand the idea that uh, that you know, that it would be the you know a, a workshop thrall tasked with fetching and carrying water and and holding the holding the die man if you caught your hand between the two dies Caught the caught the bottom of your hand. That would absolutely hurt. That would kill. Um, I'm not going to dismiss that that idea. I think the actually actually that sounds like one for experimental archaeology. So what we need is two coin dies and a volunteer um, to hold the top one in place and see if they can maintain it in place while it's being struck with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not writing the risk assessment for that. Someone else can do that. That that's that's mental. I need my hands too then... much, so I'm definitely out. <laughs> Absolutely, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Volunteers, actually, I think, I think yeah. yeah. Once you get into uh, academic archaeology and you start um, start reconstructing workshop environments for experimental archaeology. Uh, you know, which I, I wanted to do, so I needed more than one person. I needed I needed uh, assistance in the workshop, and one of the things I was looking at it was yeah, the kind of distribution of labour, and you know, and starting to get a bit of a framework together for transmission of information. You know, master to apprentice. You know, how many people would be required to operate the workshop, and then you get it. As soon as you've got other people involved, you've got risk assessments. You've got uh, and you know, a very uh, very serious feature of academia is ethics. As soon as you've got you know other people involved, you need to have an ethical assessment. Man, that's all tricky enough anyway. Imagine doing that for and the volunteer is going to hold the top coin die while I hit it with a large lump hammer. Yeah. 
there's a, there's a study in it, but um, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do the paperwork. I think we'll stick to, to using the tube for now then in archaeology. <laughs> Alright, so um, I've been meaning to ask you about this. Um, what do you think was the... What do you think was the connection to magic in metalwork in the Viking Age? Connections with magic, it's... Um, I think that it... I know that it's obviously really difficult to talk about from a um, classical it's academic difficult. point of view, isn't it? No, well, it is and it isn't. Um, because, you know, this is where, uh, you know, but experimental archaeology is very closely aligned with, um, with ethno-archaeology. General premise of, it, of ethno-archaeology is looking at um, other world cultures for, uh, yeah, it, for analogues, for uh, uh, analogies uh, with material culture, you know, discovered through uh, through excavation. So you know, it's like it, it's used a lot. In fact, possibly a little bit too much, really, uh, when looking at Stone Age societies. You know, Stone Age. Yeah, lithicists hate that term. But you know, uh, Paleolithic and Mesolithic hunter-gatherer camps, yeah. that sort of thing. You can look at. You can look at uh, you know, contemporary world societies, and in order to help understand what you're finding, it's by no means perfect. But we're not going to go into that. Um, one of the things you do find in uh, in contemporary, say, African cultures, is a level of just sort of mystery and respect surrounding surrounding metal workers. You know, and so it's very, very tempting to to kind of to draw an analogy across with that and say that the metalwork in early medieval Europe held a held a similar level of awe and mystery. Um, there's a, a site in uh, in the Outer Hebrides, uh, Ellen of Aravat, uh, which is a small man-made island with a with a brock on it, basically brock, a, a complex Atlantic roundhouse. Um, yeah, so built in around the, you know, built in what the sort of first, yeah, first second century, yeah, AD roughly, if not a little earlier, um, occupied as a brock, you know, that kind of island settlement, defensive through the Iron Age, and abandoned by about what's it, third, fourth century, something like that. In the sixth, seventh century, it was reoccupied briefly um, by a metal worker. Now, this uh, by that time, this particular site is away from, away from the contemporary like kind of uh, uh, central settlements, and it has a, a casting hearth, moulds, crucibles, and you know therefore presumably uh, was occupied by a group, you know, you know of three, at least three individuals to operate, you know, to make moulds, uh, make crucibles gather wood the analysis of the of the charcoal uh, remains show that the, the the charcoal was made from driftwood found on the beach you know so this was a temporary casting site by uh, you know an itinerant casting specialist set away from you know, the main settlement presumably whoever's in charge says yeah co you know come and cast some stuff for me but make sure you're well away from where everyone else is and it's ever so tempting to see that there's an air of mystery there that there's you know that they're not it's not 
just somewhere that they can repurpose to build themselves a shelter. It's also somewhere that's being kept at arm's length because of a certain level of mistrust and fear. Very, very tempting to kind of lay that sort of an interpretation onto that site. And that could be a pattern that was, you know, you know that was uh, prevalent in the early Middle Ages, you know, with itinerant metal workers being set on the edge of settlements outside of to outside of you know of um of central places being under the control of you know of uh of chiefs you know producing high high status objects for them that nobody understands how they're made because you know that you know this person can take rock and turn it into shiny metal you know if they're really really good they can they can take this this you know base metals and make them look like gold. They can apply gold to the surface. We're coming in almost there into alchemy, you know. But you know, you know uh, ideas that have come to us in modern day through folk, you know, through folklore and legend, were coming in, in, almost into that kind of territory. You know, back to Ellen Varavat, you know, if this site was a tower, you know, a tower where the, you know, the the wizard went and yeah. You performed miracles with with rocks and metal. You know you could almost see the the sort of the archetype in there of of our modern ideas of magic users. So maybe that was associated with it. I think that's certainly it's certainly worth thinking about that. That's how people saw uh, you know, saw the metal worker in you know in the early Middle Ages. But this is the big but here. In the Viking Age, at the end of the 8th century into the 9th century, you had the growth of towns in Scandinavia. The Emporia, Reba, Hedeby, Burka. Yeah, these places grew up from seasonal trading markets that, uh, that artisans gathered at to sell their wares and became towns by the beginning of the 9th century. And at that point, the metal workers moved into towns. So, are we seeing the Vi is the Viking Age a point at which, yeah, metalworking went from being, yeah, uh, the 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 preserve of, yeah, wizards wandering the country, arriving where they where they felt like, going wherever they wanted, and setting up wherever they could. And technically, therefore, kind of limited in what they could produce, to settling in towns and becoming part of an active network, able then to produce, you know, incredible objects of, from multiple materials, drawing on the skills of of multiple masters in different trades. Did that then accelerate, you know, the you know, sort of the growth of metalworking as an industry and is that why we then have the development of an, a, a, of systems of transmission of technique of information like you know, from master to apprentice development of skill through through yet yeah, a journeyman that in the middle ages became guilds Are you with me yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> There's yeah. a sort of development there, you know, which 
you know, medieval guilds at the end of the day preserved uh, preserved the and taught the knowledge of of crafts, yeah, maintaining a level of mystery in circumstances where you know metal workers weren't necessarily seen like wizards anymore. Yeah. Well, that's that is a that is a fascinating take on it. Yeah, you think about a lot when you're hitting metal and uh, and carving. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's quite funny going back to the original uh, the, the original Asgard craft shop in Loch Carron. We were in fact two miles outside of uh, Loch Carron. I always did wonder if I was sort of the the metal worker kept on the edge of the village. <laughs> I was on the site of an old smithy as well. And you, oh, wow. if you ever talk to ever talk to old um, you know the older Highlanders about the the stories and the and the mystique and the aura surrounding blacksmiths. You know, it's still kind of part of the psyche. Yeah. Absolutely. There's... Well, even okay. with uh, the industrialization of it in or you know in the Viking Age or it becoming more common in towns and stuff, it still would have been fascinating, as it still is now. And possibly maybe Maybe it's for more fascinating now because people are more disconnected from it than they used to be. Oh, I find that all the time when demonstrating uh, metalworking. I mean, um, yeah, uh, I mean, we, we for the last uh, three years we've been demonstrating metalworking and uh, at the Orbit Viking Festival, and I try to get other shows in whenever I can. Mm. Um, and when people see poor molten metal, uh, see, I mean. Even just shaping, uh, just shaping iron, you know, like people like to see that. As soon as you start to do anything more complex with it, the, the, you know, the, the, the you know, the awe, it, you know, that people have for just being able to shape something and understanding how it works, which is something that to me is like kind of commonplace. You know, it happens every day. You know, we have a workshop, we cast metal. Yeah, um, but when you put that in front of people and you can see, yeah, I think it's one of those things where because so many people don't have contact with that manufacturing concept on a daily basis because our modern society produces hundreds of thousands of objects in one run that you know that are ultimately disposable and end up in you know end up in landfill you know you, you present people with a, a an antler Viking comb and show them how to make it, and all like, oh, right, you know, when the comb in their pocket is made of plastic and cost twenty p, you know, it's it's worlds apart. And we have, yeah, I think one of the things that certainly the you know Viking reenactment, living history, uh, craft demonstration in 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 kind of period settings does is helps people to think understand the nature of our own society by looking at what uh, you know, a former society was like when you have you know, clearly you know, analogous objects from Absolutely. one and yeah you know, and you can see how they how they were treated you know how they were produced then and you can think about you know the the means of production of something like that today and it, you know it's staggering in Asia shows the yeah the difference of a of a thousand years ago you know yeah yeah you know, there's a there's a famous saying in archaeology that, that you know the past is another country and it really is they do things differently there mm. i've always been interested in that 
that connection in between ornamenting something uh, on a level that it gives it more value. I hear people say when, when I'm tattooing them, say like I, I tattoo their right leg and then they say, well, if I'm going to have a car accident, I hope I, I lose my left leg now because, you know, the pictures are on the right. And <laughs> I mean, as it is, as well as obviously if you, like you say, if you have an antler comb that if you are involved in seeing how long it takes or, or yeah, you've, well, the, there has to be that understanding in someone's mind of, of the effort that goes into it, first of all, for it to have value. But then once it is also ornamented yeah. on top of that with something that you appreciate, it's going to be, you know, it's worth as, as a, you know, as tenfold. I think so. Um, yeah. Plus you, you, taking the, the case of, yeah, the case of antler combs. Yeah. The decoration is, is also a part of, uh, yeah, it's a part of the object. I mean, yes, it adds, adds aesthetic value, as you say, but then also becomes uh, an indicator, a signifier of where it's from, you know, of its style. And I think that that's something that uh, we we can touch on, you know, when considering Viking Age art. I mean, you know, yeah, both you and I have have looked, you know, have looked at and worked with Viking Age art, and we can under, we understand the forms, and we've talked about uh, the construction uh, and so on. And even then, I think we don't quite have the full ability to comprehend what it meant to people in the Viking Age. You know, that yeah, it's telling stories that we, that we don't have the necessary vocabulary to understand. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I wish we could. I really wish, I wish we could understand exactly what they meant. And you can, you can see that in typologies of objects and, and I've had friends that will hate me for saying this particularly once who've done them so typologies of objects such as combs can uh can break down the the you know the sort of the physical attributes of the styles and designs but are ultimately in themselves not that enlightening it, it's like a stamp collecting exercise it's you know it's like um yeah it, it, it's just describing something in a more in a finer way but still doesn't really help us to help us to understand exactly what a Viking Age person thought when they saw it, that they could probably read a story from it that we're just not getting. You know, yeah. Is it where it came from? You know, is it, you know, who made it? You know, all of yeah, these things. For instance, uh, in the Mammon style, you've got the Great Beast, and you can mm. identify the Great Beast again and again, but we don't exactly know what the beast is. Oh, then the arguments start. <laughs> well, I think it's a. Well, I think it's a. And at the end of the day, we're all as right or as wrong as each other because until you actually find a manuscript where someone says, "Oh, by the way, just in case anyone wants to know, the the mammon beast is actually meant to be a lion," um, you know, it's like yeah. until that turns up, no idea. Yeah. Well, the it's the same with the Thor's hammer. It, well, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then that one hammer turned up, and it now says, "This is a hammer." That turned up that says. 
It's a hammer. <laughs> Thank you. We were fairly sure, but there was always still someone that would turn around and say, maybe it's an upturned anvil, or maybe it's a strange spoon, or something. Yeah. Yeah. But no, no, that one says, it's a hammer. Thanks for that one, Rune Carver. We really needed that, just to be sure. But I, I, I'm also very interested in, in Pictish art. Yet yeah, one, well, one more diversion I always end up in. And the arguments in Pictish art about what the particular creatures represent. Oh, you know, is it a sea elephant? Is it a, I don't know, flying dolphin? I don't know, you know, it's like... And at the end of the day, nobody can ever, ever be completely proved yeah, um, you know, correct or, or wrong until an actual key, a Rosetta Stone for Pictish art, turns up where some monk in the in the 7th century went, you know what, I think people are going to actually want to know what these represent one day. Maybe I'll write it down. You know, until that appears... It's all, it's all argument and interpretation. It's just a Pictish beast, the Pictish, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm. I personally think on that creature that it evolved from the uh, you know, pre-Roman Iron Age Latin creature, that it sort of got more... Oh, I've seen that one, yeah. Animal-like creatures, uh, animal-like... Um, animal-like features as it came out of the the over-stylized form just fitting into shapes and became something a little bit more like an animal but club-footed and you know bizarre as hell but again we'll never know but it's it's, it's fun to make theories on it well it is but one thing have you spotted its similarities with the uh with the the yelling beast Yes. Has a lappet on the back of the head and an extended nose, but the nose hasn't bent back on itself yet. Yeah. Yeah. If it's if it would just if it would just look over its shoulder, you know, then bang, that would be it'd be the yelling beast, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but personally, personally, and is it my my favorite my favorite showstopper on that one is I think it's the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously. Seriously, because one of the stories of um of uh, was it Col- was it Columba? Yeah, was it Columba visiting the Picts? Yeah, I uh, found a a, pre- a Christian priest being harassed by a creature on the shore of uh, of Loch Ness. So he went and fought off the creature. I'm probably misremembering this terribly. Uh, went and fought off this uh, this sea beast. You know, and forced it back into the water with his godliness and piety, and that's often mentioned as the first recorded sighting of the Loch Ness monster. So that's where I draw Loch Ness monster from. Yeah. Right? What that likely represents in you know in the hagiography in the storytelling is the Christian converting uh, converting missionary fighting off the water spirit venerated by the Picts. Yeah, as part of their pre-Christian religion, that the, that they had a spirit of the water represented in in Christian doctrine as a beast, clearly as a you know as these things often were dragons, etc. Um, you know, and there we have on the stones across lots of different areas on stones with you know, crescent and V rods, with circles and Z rods, with all the other symbols that may represent kind of tribal allegiance. There we have this common form. You know, of some kind of water creature that, 
you know, presumably could be thought to in, inhabit any, you know, by extension, I'm making things up here, but, you know, anyway, uh, you know, uh, could be uh, inhabit any body of water, is that part of the, of the disappeared pre-Christian religion of the Picts, surviving to us as, that, thanks to Columba, as the Loch Ness Monster, yeah, so actually that doesn't exclude your idea that it's developed from the from the Laten, mm. yeah, sort of yeah, serpentine creature, because these things could all be re- uh, linked in religious concepts. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, we still just don't know. And I, I like my my kind of you know, it, yeah, conversation stopper of I think it's the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... You've probably heard me say how I think that um, the creatures within the Latin, uh, the British Latin stuff we're talking about, are usually, well, they usually have like bird elements to them. Ah, uh, yes. But I yes. don't think that necessarily restricts them to to being just birds, because there is a very serpentine feel to some of them as well. The whole point yeah. of the the idea, I I think, within it all, is that it was um, it was abstract. And that's what's well, very interesting as well, as well, because um, you know I, I I do have a habit of uh, crossing some of these ideas over, and I think it's, and I, I try to be as careful as I can with this, but there is an element that's undeniable about, uh, you know, Viking art that it's there's something very surreal about it. It's not supposed to be, you know, because they they would have seen stuff like say uh, Roman influenced art and stuff that was very realistic and, yes and... yeah uh, representational yeah. Uh, and and you have parts in you know in viking art when someone wants to draw a horse they draw a bloody horse exactly you know you know it doesn't have you know sort of you know uh, uh, i'm thinking of uh, picture stones from gotland i'm thinking of the of the Oseberg tapestry you know you want to actually put a horse on something you know yeah you know, even you know even if it's Sleipnir, you know it's odin's riding it and it's got eight legs you know mm. you draw what it, you it is drawn as it is. Then you have art styles with animals within them that have, yeah, yeah, okay. Some of them really are animals. Uh, you know, um, I'm thinking the Hagen wind vane and mammon style. You know, has definitely has birds on it. You know, they they really really are birds. Um, I can see what what you mean, um, but you know, it's like but there there's anotherness to them. There are they are something separate as well. You know, they're they're more they're sort kind of a another classification of beast that's not necessarily grounded in reality. You know, and it's at the point where you know it's like yeah, it is is our argument about exactly what what they what animals they're meant to represent even relevant if it's something you would even have worried about a thousand years ago. You know, and I, mm, possibly not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm, not sure. Anyway. Well, uh, before we started uh, recording, you told me a little bit about this box, or you know, and I started because oh, I yes. wanted to. I want to hear more about the box. So you, you spent most of lockdown uh, building a, a smaller toolbox to work away with. Well, that that was the intention. Um, that was the intention. I mean, uh, some of my lockdown then got eaten up with um, yeah, with you know, from a business perspective. Uh, well, well, uh, two thousand twenty's been. Uh, interesting, hasn't it? I mean, um, yes. you know, it got off to got off. I mean, I mean, man, the Yorbit Viking Festival. We've never seen anything like the Yorbit Viking Festival this year, have we? Mm. You know, where mate, with the the you know uh, our our 
yet the major event on the Saturday night was called off due to wind. Um, our demonstration had to have been moved around because of wind. It, it was terrible. I mean, I, I, at February, I didn't think it could actually get much worse. That'll serve me for having thoughts like that. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, our demonstration activities were curtailed through that. And then, you know, and that was around about the time that in the rest of the world, coronavirus was becoming a big thing. So for us, that involved um, furloughing our, our our foundry staff here in Scotland, closing the shop in York, um, you know, and you know, and suddenly my you know my schedule of all the things I was going to do this year just got totally wiped clean, which in some respects wasn't you know, it was a little bit you know you know, suddenly you find yourself thinking well what am I going to do, yeah. and I thought. Right, what I will do is um, is I will get making a smaller toolbox because, as I said, I did my, my Master's in Experimental Archaeology uh, last year and in that I identified the toolkit of the, uh, of the non-ferrous metal worker for working with silver, working with copper alloys, for making sheet, wire, hammered bracelets, things like, yeah, things like ring money bracelets, hammered silver bracelets. Yeah, and worked out the tools you would need for that. And I was very proud of myself, and I did very well in my Masters. I graduated with that. And then all of the tools, all of these little tools and punches and hammers, went back into my big blacksmithing toolbox. And whenever I wanted to use them, I had to dig around in there and pull stuff out of the way, and it got to be a bit of a pain. So I thought, I'll make a smaller toolbox to keep them in, that will also be able to, therefore use as a traveling toolbox because i'm i do get called over to scandinavia you know to uh, demonstrations for you know, uh, small events to do you know workshops that sort of thing so at least i've got it all in one easily transportable box so at the start of lockdown i set up my forge in my garden in in dunoon and uh, and start and started making this went and got a went and got a plank of oak uh you know and and, and then i then I had the mad thought of, I know, I'll make the fittings out of wrought iron. That'll be fun. It'll all be, you know, as close to the material that would have been used in the Viking Age as possible. And that's pretty much where the problem started. Because, you know, working wrought iron is not the same as working mild steel. And so I finally, now, what is it, six months later... <laughs> Just finished this thing yesterday, so, the, so the, if you see my see my social media, you'll you'll be seeing me uh, proudly showing off this uh, this new toolbox, and that we now have the the Viking non-ferrous metal worker, by which we mean jeweler really, uh, you know, toolkit in it, and that was partly you know this is kind of refining my understanding of who these people were. This is carrying the tools that they would have had. This is thinking about every aspect of their practice. You know, so it's, it's, it's taught me a lot, given me a lot to think about. And at the end of, you know, and while it is sort of one object, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a thing I made, there is more to it. There's more of the concept, there's more of, thinking, trying to think about what was important to them and what they needed and what they could actually feasibly use, use no, what they actually feasibly needed to move from place to place.
you know, I would assume that, uh, you know, that a decent workshop set up in a Viking Age town would have, you know, big anvils, hammers, tongs, a forge, all of that basic furniture. But if you were an itinerant jeweller, it would not have your small pliers, your smaller hammers, your, your punches. They would be personal. So I'm assuming that, you know, if to, for you know, a specialist to move from place to place, they would need this this smaller toolkit. And I finally got it done. <laughs> nice. Well, I haven't actually been on social media today, so I haven't had a look. Uh, so I look forward to seeing it. Uh, just uh, before we move on, do you think then that um, do you think that there would have been metal workers that would have specialised in making these tools for other metal workers, or would they have made them themselves and within their smaller their group setting? Now that that's a tricky one. That's a very good question. Because of course there was comb makers and such. Uh, obviously, that's that's a very uh, everyday. I have I have item. my own thoughts about comb makers. You see, uh, yeah, I have my own thoughts about comb makers. I'll, I'll throw this one out there. I get in trouble when I start. I get I get in trouble with archaeologists when I start talking about bone and antler workers in the same breath as metal workers, and then I go, "But I'm both." Uh, and but of course, I am a modern person, not a person of the Viking Age. So you know, I can kind of see why there is usually a distinction between the two. However. Combs require metalworking. Mm. They're not just made of, of antler or bone if you're short of antler. They also have rivets. They require some basic metalworking tools and know-how. How you get the rivets is going to answer the question of whether there's a separation. Now, I have this kind of mad idea that comb making itself as a trade could be something suited to a journeyman metalworker. Because as long as you've got the rivets, you can make combs on your own. It can be a solitary craft. It is something you do not require assistance for. As soon as you get into operating a forge, you need at least at least one other person to operate the bellows for the forge. You know, you get into a wider range of, of you know, materials. Ceramics, oh man, you can dis around, disappear down a complete rabbit hole just looking at the ceramics involved in metalworking. Mm. And, I, and I'm not a ceramicist and I keep trying to keep up and understand what the chemical changes are, are in, in, in ceramics. So, anyway, so without disappearing down that, that, that rabbit hole, um, you know, metalworking requires, requires the labour of more than one person comb making can be done by one person on their own therefore the itinerant journeyman metal worker pitches up somewhere where they can just do a bit of work on their own they can make combs mm. idea yet to be proven probably couldn't prove that one way or the other so it's just it's just a thought really um now the tools themselves yeah, again, as a modern metal worker, I've picked up enough knowledge of working with iron and steel that I can make most of my own fine tools. That's taken, you know, in Viking Age terms, probably a couple of lifetimes worth of learning. So I'm tempted to think there that I'm not a good analogy for, for the Viking Age metal worker. That... I think on balance, a probability, it's more likely that there was somebody making 
tools, that that was their specialist trade, you know, that they would know the different forms. And I think there might even be uh, evidence of one of an itinerant toolmaker in the Mastermere chest. The Mastermere tool chest is a really funny collection of tools because on the face of it, it looks like you could use the Mastermere chest to carry out any trade. Yeah, you've got, uh, there's evidence of lock making in there, but lock making and tool making could go hand in hand very easily. Uh, use of iron, use of, uh, use of carbon steel for springs. But you also have things in there like woodworking tools. And, and, and that doesn't make an awful lot of sense. You know, you, you run out of hours in the day pretty quickly if you're trying to work wood, as I found out with this box. Uh, if you're trying to work wood and, and iron, but if the owner of the Mastermere chest was making woodworking tools that they could sell to woodworkers, you know, pass or trade or, you know, barter for, uh, for, uh, a night, uh, uh, for a night in, a couple of nights in someone's longhouse, mm. that would make sense that the owner of the Mastermere chest was a tool maker. Again, that's you know, my contribution to, to discussion on them. Um, on what's going on with that particular slightly puzzling find, so I do suspect that tool makers were, you know, would be a separate trade in their own right, which starts to open up. Yeah, you know, we we do think of metalworking specialisations as being a, uh, you know, well, a, me a very medieval thing. You know, the medieval guilds got very uh, precious about what people were doing who were members of the guild: goldsmithing, silversmithing, uh, leadworking. Yeah, etc. You know, coopering. You know, they got very precious, and you don't see that in the Viking Age, where you have yeah, um, yeah, as a as a modern jewelry metal worker trying to get uh, something hallmarked when it has elements made of copper alloy, silver. Our hallmarking system was set up, yeah, you know, as a development of of uh, the guild system of the Middle Ages, and therefore you know, mixing metals kind of isn't allowed yeah but you go back to the viking age they didn't care if it looked shiny and added to added to the overall appearance of something you whacked it on there you know what i mean yeah so there's very clearly a different ethos at work at work in that and you know and i yeah i think tool makers there's i just see this yawning chasm of a, of a whole research area into tool making that i could go and fall down but trying to develop my, my silversmithing craft and my silversmithing understanding yeah nice well, before we um before we just uh we start to tie it up could you tell me about what well now that you've uh you've finished your toolbox what what, what are you thinking um project wise have you got on personally for the future uh well well the, the toolbox uh, you know i mean Part of my masters in experimental archaeology was, you know, was I was reconstructing the the workshop environment to understand its working, you know, and to understand how many people and the and the the sort of the interpersonal relationships uh, between the individuals and the and the, the processes used within that. And the next thing from that really is is you know, building workshops, building a more permanent workshop. I mean, I have been approached by uh, you know uh, by you know, organisations um, to you know, to look at reconstructing the you know, uh, the the Viking Age workshop of which there are a few that have been found more or less intact. 
but they they still leave questions such as what exactly the forge looked like and you know and you know what exactly anything above the floor plan level looked like what kind of building do you yeah. put a workshop in you know how about we thatch the roof? How about not? The charcoal forges produce a lot of sparks, you know. Unless you want to be uh, be putting fires out every few weeks, probably not the best idea. You've got sort of super structural questions on that that need addressing. So that that's kind of where where some of my research has been going recently. So I've been asked to you know, to to look at you know reconstructing the space the the space for people to work in in the way that they worked in in the viking age so an understanding of of everything from you know from the the arrangement of hearth and anvil out to the shape of the building to then you know uh, addressing problems of how do you stop the building going on fire uh you know to you know um but you know in the uh, and we're looking at yeah you know, organizations i'm talking about are places that you know that are open to public so you need, really need to be able to kind of present this to the public which might involve compromise in terms of in terms of arrangement so that a, a, an audience can observe this space and see and yeah and get this experience a taste of this experience of the viking age world and i'd like to be running workshops in that kind of setting so I'm I'm looking at kind of go uh, going and doing that and that kind of connection between reconstructing the environment and public outreach and interpretation is what I'm likely to uh, what I'm likely to eventually when things have settled down a bit put into a proposal for doing a PhD in experimental archaeology and um, which is absolutely on the cards. That's I, I've now reconcile myself to the fact that yes that has been delayed by coronavirus for for various reasons some of them business you know personal etc yeah. uh but that very much on that's what i want to be doing in the next few years is working that into a phd which marries together the results of experimental archaeology with what i feel is the most the absolutely the most important responsibility of archaeology in general which is to communicate the results of excavation to the public at large otherwise what's the point well i look forward to it then yeah that's gonna be awesome so looking like a busy few years and you know we we keep on producing we keep on producing our viking jewelry i've got got clothing ranges on the underway as well and new designs about to be launched on that that will be that will be seen yeah, fairly soon. Nice. Um, and more hats, but yeah, in terms of research, that's really what yeah, what I want to be doing. Wicked. All right. Well, um, the new uh, the new range is going to be on your website and everything. So oh I'd, uh, yeah. I'd like if you could just tell tell everyone about that a little bit. Watch Asgard. Watch Asgard. Social media. Yeah, we've got the got new clothing designs coming out because because uh, we there, there was of course a very pressing need for um, face masks. Yeah few weeks ago which was something i had actually already been working on for a little while I had new new art that had been on the drawing board and um well uh, there's a little hint in those face masks we uh, we produce which i i, I use one myself because of course having a beard oh yes you know, uh, normal face masks are just I, I i couldn't get one to work my my mum made us some very early on in lockdown she made us all a bunch of face masks and I could not get one one to work over my beard at all. So that's when I went right. Okay, let's let's 
look at uh, getting someone to produce as a, a wrap style face mask and that is the first outing of uh, my new my new uh, rune designs uh, a new set of younger full thought runes just kind of you know representing uh, runes as they're used in the Viking Age well it's Danish it's Danish long twig runes because at some point you, go, you just got to go well I can't produce all of the runes yeah. you know even ones that we use contemporary uh, uh, contemporaneously but are different so gone with one the ones that I like the Danish long twig runes they're already on that face mask so they'll give a bit of a hint of what's going to be coming out in uh, in clothing terms soon and then yeah um, drawing board has more designs on it as well but i kind of yeah flip from thing to thing well i'm very much looking forward to uh to seeing what happens there then because the the whole thing of wearing face mask while i'm tattooing is obviously i'm i'm struggling i'm getting by but i tried tying it up and tucking it away or whatever and it just they, they don't they don't work like uh i understand why like in the military and in the military you're not allowed to have a beard and stuff if you're trying to wear masks mm. because it's it's a bloody nightmare uh, yeah, I'm still not curling off though. <laughs> oh God, no! Well, why should we? Well, why should we? You know, exactly. you know. I mean, um, yes, we need to be careful out there. The the masks that we have, uh, we are already available on the website on uh, on Asgard.scot, and they're uh, uh, the kind of plasticky, they're a little bit more synthetic than I would have liked. I would have liked to have produced something in natural materials, but. The other side of that, of course, is that they are a, a nano weave. They're a, a very fine mesh weave, so they prevent you know uh, particles going going either way, you know more than than a sort of standard yeah standard fabric buff. Um, so that that's why we went with that, and they're washable, reusable, and and great for wearing with a beard. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to go over and have a look at that. Then. Yeah. Oh, we'll send you one. Well, uh, yeah. just before we leave it, then I'll just. Uh... You know, I just want to say to people that you know, you guys are also on Facebook and Instagram under Asgard Craft. Is it Asgard or is it Asgard Craft? Asgard, Asgard dot Scott. We, we we switched to when did we switch to Asgard? Asgard. We we dropped the craft when we went further down the line. I'm just of, living um, in the past. I remember you guys as craft. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's when we went away from from it being all all bespoke objects. I was producing as one offs. Once we got further into casting designs. Mm. We dropped the crafts thing. That was about 2010, so I think it's 2010, 2011. Oh no, that was when we first started talking about it. So yeah, it was proper, it was quite a, quite a long rebranding exercise, I think. It, well, either way, it definitely shows how long I've been following your stuff for then. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for thinking of me for your for the Northern Fire podcast series. I'll have I'll have to take a listen. All right. Well, hopefully uh, we can do this again another time, man. And I'll uh, I'll see you soon. Cool. See you later. Yep. Yeah, cheers.